God, we recognize and confess that this is your church. We are grateful for the opportunity we have to gather in corporate worship, that we are now the family of God, that though we may have been separated, Jews and Gentiles alienated from one another, you have brought us into one body through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as we look at your word, as this whole summer we are looking at what it means to be a church, I ask and I beg that you would convict our hearts, that you would show us indeed what it looks like practically to live as a body, that we may reflect you, Jesus Christ, to the world. So we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're wrapping up our series, as we're coming very close to the very tail end of everything, uh, we're looking today at what it means to be a mercy-practicing church. Uh, We've studied many different topics, and uh, this is the one that we have before us this morning. Uh, But I wanted to start uh, this morning by talking a little bit about human nature, especially about myself. Uh, I know that all of us have the tendency at different times, or you know people uh, that can easily overreact to situations, right? Uh, You respond just a little bit more stronger than a situation actually needs. Uh, We call that overreacting. And I did that a lot growing up as a young child, all the way through my college years. I remember as an elementary school student uh, starting Taekwondo, which was a martial art. And as part of Taekwondo, you would uh, have to compete against other people on a sort of one-on-one combat fighting. But I was scared to death by the idea. Uh, So much so that as I was getting ready for my very first tournament ever, uh, going down to the the foreign land of Silmar, having to fight these people that I've never seen before, I remember every single day for at least a month praying, God, please rapture us. Please let the end of the world come. I I don't want to go through this. It sounds so difficult and scary. Uh, And lo and behold, he did not bring the rapture. Uh, Later on, when I was in eighth grade, I had the privilege of going on a mission trip to the country of Ecuador. And there we were serving the people and being able to uh, talk about the gospel to many individuals. And I remember there, there was one girl I met that I thought was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. Over that two-week period, I talked to her no more than 10 minutes. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe this will be the girl that I'm going to marry. But you know what? Eighth grade Alex was wrong. I never saw her ever again. And in fact, I have no idea where she is to this day. Uh, Going all the way over to college, I remember from kindergarten through my senior year of high school, I was a straight A student. Never got a single B's. That just wasn't even my vocabulary. But as a freshman pre-med student, I remember getting my very first B in biology. And it was there that I thought to myself, this is it. My career is over. But you know what? I was right. Because I was the end of my pre-med career. Uh, never again would I even think about wanting to be a doctor. Uh, so growing up, I've o- easily overreacted and even today working in many different ways to know how to be a balanced individual. Uh, but I think all of us, either for ourselves or for other people, we know that we can have a tendency to overreact just a little bit in different situations. This happens very much on an individual level, but this also happens on a church level as Christians when it comes to areas of theology. You can take any given area of scripture, any given topic, and we as human beings in our nature have the tendency to overreact, to take things to the furthest extreme, far beyond what God actually calls us to do in scripture. Look for a moment at the subject of salvation. We know that we're saved by faith, that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation 
But oftentimes that idea of having full assurance can lead us to ignore the role of holiness. That we think we are fully saved. There is nothing we can do at all to earn our salvation. And thereby completely ignore the importance of sanctification and of holiness. We can also go to the opposite extreme of that case, where we so emphasize the role of works, which indeed are important and necessary, but thereby have no assurance of salvation. And that every time you struggle with some kind of sin, you think to yourself, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Because you're so overemphasizing the role of works, which are indeed important. You see this in the topic of evangelism as well. We know that we're called to make disciples of all nations. But for some people, they take it so far, they overreact to that important theme so much, and, and they're striving to be relevant and engaging with the world. They compromise, whether it's in speaking about the true gospel or whether it's about living a worldly type of life, they fail to properly represent Christ. And of course, on the opposite extreme, you have those that are so scared of the idea of being corrupted by the world that you do everything you can to ignore non-believers. You want to live in this holy bubble that we have over here. And we do this with many different themes of scripture. That is human nature. It's not something that is just the, the few and far in between. But if we're not careful, we can easily overreact into one of two extremes for any given topic. And especially when it comes to the subject of mercy ministry. That as we look at what it means to be merciful, how God calls us to care for the poor and the marginalized, the orphan and the widow, very easily too, we can overreact into one of those two extremes. On the one hand, you have the social justice warrior, the type of person that is so dead set fighting any form of oppression, anything that can constitute any kind of injustice, so much so that they actually replace the gospel, that they ignore what it means that we are saved by Jesus Christ and jump ahead to wanting to fight any area of oppression. But I think for our church, that isn't the extreme that most of us gravitate towards. I think the extreme that we have as conservatives is to have the type of callous conservative mentality. Who cares about the poor? They deserve their plight. They deserve theirs. And easily in our culture, we can kind of get this callous mentality where we don't really care what's happening to other people. But unfortunately, both of those extremes, the extreme of the social justice warrior and the extreme of the callous conservative fails to miss the mark, the balanced perspective that the Bible shares on the aspect of mercy ministry. God is a merciful God. Throughout the book, throughout the book of the Bible and all the books that you see there, he shows himself to have a heart of mercy for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, for those who have less than others. And if we are to be a Bible-believing church, if we are to follow after God, then we as Christians must be a mercy-practicing church. We must extend mercy to the downtrodden just as our God extends mercy to the downtrodden. And I hope as you're hearing this message and as I'm trying to deliver it, that you understand that I'm not trying to get into a type of works-based mentality. You just do more. But everything that we're going to see today from the Bible comes from who God is. It must stem from a genuine heart of service. And so to break this down, we're going to look at many different texts. But I want to see this as three considerations. 
The three considerations for why we as Christians, why we as a church must be a mercy practicing church. And here are the three considerations. Mercy ministry one is a reflection of God's character. Mercy ministry two is the responsibility of God's people. And then three, mercy ministry is restrained by God's mission. You need to have a balanced perspective. So first, I'm going to look at our first point, how mercy ministry is a reflection of God's character. Uh, One of the discussions and topics that comes up oftentimes when you are looking at the Old Testament is how should we as New Testament believers read and understand the Old Testament law? Uh, When you read the Pentateuch, the Mosaic law, all of the commands that God gave to the people of Israel, we know that today those were written to a particular people in a particular culture. That Israel, as those people would follow God, they would be right with God through their obedience to the law. And we know through Matthew 5, 17, that when Jesus Christ came, he has fulfilled the law. That that perfect standard, which was the expectation of God's followers, we could never fulfill ourselves, but it's through Jesus, through his perfect obedience on the earth, that we can have the righteousness of God, that we can be made right with him. And we know that we as Christians, we now fall under the new covenant, that we are bound to the law of Christ, not to the law of man. And therefore, we're not morally obligated to obey the Old Testament law as it stands. But of course, this has a very unfortunate uh, side effect. Oftentimes for people, when they hear that we are now freed in Christ, we're no longer bound to the law. Uh, You're going through your your, your, uh, yearly Bible reading plan and you get to the law. You get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then you begin to just sort of blur the reading, right? You don't really think much about what you're reading. You, You don't even really understand it. And so oftentimes you kind of just skim over parts or your mind goes blank because as you're reading, you say to yourself, this does not apply to me anymore. And this is a very dangerous mentality. See, though we are not as Christians bound to the Old Testament law to follow it, we cannot ignore the Old Testament, especially the commands there given to Israel, because all of those laws reveals something timeless that does apply to us. And that is the character of God. When you read the Old Testament, every one of those laws, even as obscure as they may sound, every one of those laws is based on who God is. It reveals to us his character. See, when God gave the laws to Israel, he was not giving them laws in a vacuum, right? He was not just giving them arbitrary things to do and not do for the sake of doing them. But all the commands that he gives the people of Israel were based on who God is. Now he would tell the people of Israel, you must be fair in your dealings with one another. You must make restitution if you damage another person's property because God is just and fair. You must obey one another. You must seek to love one another in marriage. You must be faithful to your marriages because God is a faithful God. He wrote all of those extensive laws on leprosy of what it meant to be away from those who have leprosy because God was saying he is a holy and set apart God. If you were to read the laws on the tabernacle, which are very, very extensive and seemingly confusing, every one of those specific laws and orders points to how God demanded to be worshiped. That we cannot just approach God however we want, but we must approach him. We must worship him as he calls. 
The Old Testament law reveals to us the character of our God, who he is. And therefore, we must understand the Old Testament law. But one of the things that the law does indeed show us about God's character is that our God, Yahweh, is a merciful God. In the Old Testament, in many, many commands, all that shows us that God is a God who cares for the poor, for the downtrodden, that he wants to extend mercy to them, and therefore he commands Israel, his people, to do the same. And to look at this, we're going to look at many texts today, but the first one that we're going to go to is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Deuteronomy, chapter 15, uh, starting from verse 7 to verse 11. And I'm going to read it all the way through. God is speaking to his people and he says this in Deuteronomy 15, 7. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake." For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. It is here where you see God's heart revealed. How he cares very much for the poor of those lands. That he does not want the downtrodden to be downtrodden. And therefore, he calls Israel to extend mercy to their poor brothers. He's saying, if you see one of your brothers who for some reason is falling on hard times and he is calling out to you, help your brother. Extend a hand of mercy and compassion to your brother. And he's bringing up a very interesting cultural dynamic here. See, what would happen in, in that day is every seven years, all of the personal debts, loan to loan, person to person, would be forgiven in the land of Israel. And so what would happen is that if you were giving a loan to a friend or a brother in the beginning of those seven years, there was a very good chance that you would receive the money back because your brother would have seven years to pay you back. And for those people, for Israel, they would say, okay, I will give you what you need. I want to help you out. But as those years went on, as you got closer and closer to the end of a seven-year period, people would get more and more stingy because there was less and less of a chance that you would actually see that money back. If a person only has six weeks or six months to pay back a huge debt, you probably would not receive that back. And so God is warning the people of Israel. He's saying, do not worry if the seven years is approaching, because I want you to be generous and merciful. Don't give with the expectation that you are going to receive back. Give because you are seeking to extend compassion to your neighbor because God himself extends mercy and compassion. And verse 11 is so important. He says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. 
so oftentimes people read that verse as an excuse for why you don't need a gift, right? Why help out the people around you? There will always be poor in the land. But when they read that, they so misunderstand what God is saying here. God is not saying ignore people because there will always be needs. He's saying care for the poor, extend a hand of mercy because there will never cease to be poor in the land. Extend a heart of mercy to those around you. When you see your brothers in need, when you see your brothers that are being downtrodden, care for them. Ultimately, because God is a merciful God, that is part of his character. It is who he is. You know, so oftentimes we don't think about this facet of God's nature, that he is a merciful God who cares for the poor. But he cares for them so much so that when you read in Proverbs 14.31, it says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, that is God. Solomon is saying that the way that you treat the poor, those who have less than you, those who cannot give back to you, that is a reflection of how you are treating God. That when you extend a hand of mercy to the poor, you are being generous to God, you are honoring God, but if you oppress a poor man, you are actually insulting God because he cares so much for them. And we don't have time to go extensively into the Old Testament. But I would encourage you to read through the Pentateuch and see how many commands, how many orders God gives to care for the poor. Right? You go into the harvest and the gleaning laws, how the Lord says, when you are harvesting a field, do not glean the very edges of the land, so that when the poor walk by, when a sojourner walks by, they would have something to eat. Now he would say, do not oppress the alien as they come into your land because you instead must care for them. There are so many laws referring to how you should care for the widow in the land as well. Time and time again, as you read through the Old Testament, you see the character of God revealed. And that is that he is a wonderfully merciful and compassionate God. He cares for the poor. He cares for the downtrodden because he is one of compassion and love. So much so that a lack of mercy, the failure to show compassion, was a serious sin in the sight of God. I want you to turn over to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. We're looking at verse 49 and verse 50. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. And see, in this book, Israel is writing to the uh, Ezekiel is writing to the people of Israel. They had been banished to the land of Babylon, and they thought that that was their punishment and things were going to be okay. But things were not going to be okay. Because God saw Israel's heart. Even in their punishment, they failed to properly obey him. And therefore, more judgment was going to come. But in God's judgment of Israel, as he is calling out to them through the prophet Ezekiel, he says this about the city of Sodom. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Think about that. He is comparing Israel, the people of God, to the wicked city of Sodom, saying that is your sister. And he says this. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. 
but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We so associate the city of Sodom with evil, don't we? And rightfully so. It was an abominable city in God's sight. It was a a wicked city. We read in the book of Genesis how when the the angels came to rescue Lot out of the city, how how the men of that city, Sodom, tried to sleep with them. Right? That was the the wickedness described in action. And so when you think of the, the city of Sodom and even of Gomorrah, we recognize the depravity that was in it. We see it as disgusting and as evil because they failed to obey God and follow after him in holiness. But what sin does God mention here? The abomination in his sight was not the sexual sin, which indeed was evil. But the sin that God brings up was their failure to care for the poor. The sin, the abomination that God highlights here was their lack of mercy. And in that, I want you to see that the failure to extend mercy is just as much an abomination in God's sight as any sexual sin that you may personally condemn. That yes, we cannot ignore that sexual sin is real and wrong. And yet if you fail to extend mercy, if you fail to show compassion to those around you, that is just as much an abomination in God's sight, even if we ignore it. And it makes me think about the, the civil rights movement just a generation ago. Uh, it was the conservative churches of that era that were most embracing segregation. They would most ignore the sin that was so before their eyes. And in the same way, I think that we as a contemporary church do the same thing with acts of mercy. That we do not see God's character. We do not extend the type of mercy that God expects. The same point is made in the book of Amos. It says in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves beside every altar on garments taken in pledge And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. God is again condemning his people for their mistreatment of the poor, of the orphan, and of the widow. That they sold the needy for samples. They trampled the poor. And if you were to go over to verse 8, it's describing a very specific practice. See, in that day, you could loan out your outer garment uh, to receive money. And you can loan out your garment, you would, you would receive some kind of money as sort of a rent. But at the end of the day, the person would have to return the garment back to you so that you had something to use at night to protect yourself against the elements. And so even for the poorest of people, they could loan out their garment to receive some money with the understanding and expectation that they would receive it back. But God is saying that the people of Israel... They would take the garment from the poor man. They would, they would take it and they would not give it back at night. In other words, they were abusing the marginalized. But notice what God inserts in the middle of a section in verse 7. 
you see that a father and a son are having sexual relations with the same girl. And even intrinsically, we know that that is disgusting. We know that that is sinful and evil and wrong. But God is putting that in this section to show that these sins are held parallel. That as much as we may decry and lambast sexual depravity in the same way, God abhors the lack of mercy and compassion and afflicting the oppressed. And he says this because our God is a merciful God. Again, these laws that he gives us in the Old Testament, that he gives the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were not arbitrary, but they showed us God's character. They show us the nature of our Father and Lord. And therefore, because God is a merciful God, there is an expectation and understanding that his people, too, will be merciful. And so that brings us to our second point. That mercy ministry is not just something that is based on the character of God, but it is actually the responsibility of God's people. You don't need to turn there, but if you were to go to Genesis 1.27, you see one of the most fundamental principles about human beings, that we are made in the image of God, that we are not like every other animal on the face of the earth, but we are actually different. We are higher than them because we are made in God's image. And part of that is we have the ability to live like God, that we can pursue holiness as God is holy, that we can pursue the characteristics of God as who he is. In a sense, and this is not a perfect analogy, uh, you can say that what it means that we are made in the image of God is that we are God's ambassadors. That as you would have an ambassador go to a foreign country, that individual, that ambassador would represent his or her country to the foreign nation. That whatever the ambassador would say publicly would be the same as the words of the country itself. And so in that type of way, we as Christians, we are like God's ambassadors here on earth. That he has made us to live like him and to look like him. And in our conduct to the world, we are supposed to represent and demonstrate who God is. That is in its very nature what it means that we are God's image bearers. But hear this out. If God indeed is a God of mercy, which he is, and if we are his image bearers, that means that we as Christians too must be proponents and advocates of God's mercy. That if God cares for the poor and the marginalized, then we too must care for the poor and the marginalized. And you see this throughout the New Testament. That even from the book of Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, as the, the church is exploding, as Christians are being saved and the church is growing more and more, that you see how the proclamation of the gospel is going forth. And in that, as the church is growing, you see how they care for one another tangibly. How the church was selling their possessions to care for the needs of those in their midst. They would actually want to help those that were less fortunate. And as you go to the book of James, this was one of his key themes. That in James 1.27, it says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We do very good at that second part, don't we? 
We focus on the fact that we must keep ourselves unstained by the world, and that is a good and beautiful thing. But how much do we actually practice the first part of James's statement? What does it mean to follow after God? What does it mean to practice true religion? It is to care for the orphan and the widow in their affliction. It is to seek after those that are marginalized, those that are oppressed, those that do not have as much, and to care for them. And by doing so, you reflect God's nature, because that is what God himself desires for his people. This is spoken even more strongly in James chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying that you can say that you are a Christian all you want. You can say that you have faith all you want. But if you do not live that out through your works, then your faith is dead And one of the ways that you show that you have actual faith, one of the ways that you demonstrate your faith is how you care practically for those around you. That if you see a brother or sister in the church who has a very tangible need, you do not just brush that off and say, I will pray for you. But you actually seek to help them out. That you care for those in the church community practically and tangibly because that is a reflection of true saving faith. Because God is a God of mercy. Those who are his will indeed extend mercy. But we must practice mercy as well. Because very simply, mercy is the demonstration of love. Right? We know that we are supposed to be marked by love as a church, right? Pastor Brock spoke about that just several weeks ago. But one of the most tangible elements of love, one of the ways that you see love lived out is by extending merciful love care. This was the subject in Luke chapter 10. There was a lawyer of that day, and he goes before Jesus, and he says, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in the wisdom that he had, turned the question back on him, saying, what does the law say? And the lawyer was able to answer very well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, And the second commandment is very like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, knowing this man's heart, says, you have answered correctly, go and you will be fine. But this lawyer sought to justify himself. He wanted to get out of how how grand this command would sound. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who exactly do I need to care for? And then Jesus told the lawyer this parable. There was a man that was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was beaten by robbers and left on the side of the road for dead. And during that time, a priest came by, saw the man, and passed on the other side and continued on his way. And then a Levite came, saw the man, went to the other side of the road and passed on his way. And then an abortion doctor sees the man, has compassion on him, tends to his wounds, brings him to an inn, gives the innkeeper money and says, take care of this man. Whatever else you pay, I will pay back when I come. And so Jesus says, which of those three 
prove to be a neighbor to that man? And the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. To which Jesus says, you go and do likewise. What was the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan? That we, if we truly seek to show love, which was the mark of faith, that tangible love will be seen in how we extend mercy to those around us. And it's not something where we can just pick and choose, but the heart of the Samaritan, which in that time was seen as the most disgusting and hated person, which is why I changed the the name of the individual. God is saying you must show that same type of care. And if you want to truly love your neighbor as yourself, if you want to extend the love of God, which exists in every single true Christian, then you must extend mercy to those around you. That when you see a person in need, a person who is uh, less than yourself, you must help them because mercy is a natural extension of true love. That if you have the love of God, if you truly have saving faith, which leads to you being a loving person, that you will extend it in showing love for other people. And so this type of mercy is so important that you must be seriously concerned if you lack it. This was a passage that I read so much growing up and it bothered me because I didn't understand why this was here. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 5 verse 34. Right? In this whole section in Matthew 25, Jesus is explaining those who will be in his future kingdom. The, the, the goats from the sheep. How you know that you are really in. And as part of the saying, he says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, that is the, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And those on his right, the true believers, will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did to me. That the sign of their genuine faith, the sign that they were really saved, is that they extended a heart of mercy to those in their midst, especially their brothers. But then to those on his left, those that were evil and sinful. He says, you must depart from me. You must go into the hell of fire. And I'm paraphrasing at this point. But they too will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked or sick or in prison? And then he says this to them in verse 45. Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There were many people, and there will be many people on those days that think they are saved. They will call out to him thinking they are believers. And yet they will be blindsided by their rejection by their supposed God. And one of the signs of their lack of true faith is that they did not extend a hand of mercy and compassion to those around them. Because if God is a merciful God, then what will his children do? They too will extend a hand of mercy. It's 
It's why John writes in 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you know the God of love, if you are his son and daughter, you will be like the God of love. And you will extend that love and how you care practically for the needs of those around you. If you are his children, you will display a love that is tangible and practical and merciful. And we need to hear this, Calvary. Because in our culture, we can so have this tendency of a calloused heart. That we look to the needs of those around us and say, they deserve it. They just need to try harder. Why aren't you just strapping up yourself by your bootstraps? Why are you being so lazy? And so easily you can have this heart of disgust or indifference. But I bring this up because this too is my tendency. I remember years ago, I had the chance to do a tour, a vacation tour in China. And then we were just shopping in one of the major shopping centers. It was a very bustling, crowded area, very lavish and very rich. But suddenly, all of our attention was turned because we heard this man yelling out of the top of his lungs. And as we turned over to the side, we saw this individual, this older man, dirty and covered in grime, who had only one hand. All of his limbs were cut off. And he was pulling himself on this cart through this public marketplace with a little bucket in front of him. And he was yelling out, just crying, saying, someone help me, someone help me. And you could see one by one as all the other tourists, all these people away, slowly began to move away from this individual. But me being paralyzed in that moment, I saw how he was walking directly to me. And it was really like everyone around us disappeared for a moment. And it was just me and that man. And I saw as he was slowly pulling himself towards my direction. And I remember thinking in my heart, what a drag. Why would this individual come here? Why is he bothering my vacation? Why is he coming into this place which was meant for joy and comfort? And why is he making this such an encumbrance on all of us? And I remember in that moment, there was a song that I'd been listening to at the time that was based on Matthew 25. The passage that I just read And as soon as my heart hardened, that song came into my mind. And it was in that moment that I felt my sin and my shame. Because I realized just how calloused I was to that man. I realized how little I actually cared for those around me. And I realized how far I was from having the true heart of God. See, for you, if you are sitting here, politics aside, because you can have a number of different ideologies, but politics aside, what is your heart posture when you see a beggar on the side of a road? What is your heart posture when you hear that there are refugees crawling from Central America trying to get into our country? What is your heart posture when you hear how there are so many young children who are stuck in a foster care system where many of them are abused? What is your heart posture when you see brothers or sisters in this congregation who have a very tangible need and they're calling out for help? Where is your heart? Because the heart of God is one 
of compassion. Because God is a God of mercy, because he cares for the downtrodden, those who are truly his, those who are truly saved, will extend mercy to the less fortunate. And so I urge you as a church, how are you seeking to extend mercy? Have you thought through all the scenarios in your life? If you are in Southern California, you will have many scenarios. How you seek to care for the downtrodden and the less fortunate. Do you pray for opportunities to extend mercy? Have you sought to care for the needs of our church family when you see that they're crying out for help? And have you thought through the many mercy ministries that we have here in our church? Have you ever given a second thought to getting involved in the deaf-blind ministry and visiting our shut-ins, many of which who are widows? Have you ever thought about adopting, about caring very practically for the orphan? Have you thought about wanting to extend help to those who have a need, even giving to the benevolent son of the church? Have you ever given a second thought to caring for those who have less than you? Because that is the heart of our God. That is what it means to be a true Christian, to practice true religion, is that we too have a heart of mercy for those who have needs. Because that is the heart of our God. We need to extend compassion and care. We need to have the heart of our God if we claim to be believers. And yet we must also do it in a way that keeps God priorities the priorities. So that's why thirdly, I want to look at how mercy ministry, though it is important, it must be restrained by God's mission. And what I mean by that, that isn't the best word for it, is that we must have it tempered. It must be the right kind of priority, keeping the gospel the central priority. Mercy ministry is very complex. There are many aspects to it. There are many verses that speak to different proponents or components of how we must live it out. We've seen how mercy ministry is based on the character of God, that we do it because God himself is merciful. And yet we must be very careful in how we practice it. Here I'm reading from Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. God is saying, you must care for everyone you can. If you have an opportunity, if God brings certain people into your life, care for them, not just believers, but the priority for your care is those in the church. Have an open heart in hand. Care for those who are before you, but make sure you prioritize those who are in the local church. But you also see this principle in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. It's there, and I'm, not, I'm just paraphrasing, where God says, do not promote laziness. If a person is to receive help, make sure they are actually working. And if you do not work, you shall not eat. Do not condone laziness, but instead rebuke the lazy brother. And so here, you can go into so many other texts, but you see how when you look at the idea of mercy ministry, it is so broad, right? There are so many components to it. And therefore, it is important that you do not just isolate an an individual text. If you just read one text and say, this is how we live, so often you will fall into some kind of extreme. And therefore, if you are only isolating one text, you can justify anything from the prosperity teacher 
to a Marxist revolutionary, to a social justice warrior, and even a callous conservative. If you only read one text that the Bible speaks about giving to the poor, you can justify anything. But we need to make sure we have a holistic picture of how we must live it out. And see, we've already looked at one of those extremes, the the tendency that we as a conservative church can have to not sharing it all with the poor. But we must also safeguard ourselves against the other extreme. And that is allowing mercy ministry to replace or to distort our purpose on this earth, which is sharing the gospel. All of us are very familiar with the social justice movement. It's a group of uh, so-called believers, some which really are believers and some which are not, which say that the only way you're really living out the gospel, the only way you're actually preaching the gospel is by bringing social transformation on this earth. That the way that you proclaim the gospel is by going out and building wealth. It is by ending any kind of political oppression. It is by ending any kind of poverty in a city. In other words, for these people of the social justice movement, there is no distinction between evangelism and social transformation. And we know that this is dangerous because by replacing the gospel, by not speaking about the need for repentance, so oftentimes they're creating a nicer world, but they're still sending people to hell. See, by not proclaiming the message of heaven, having an unbalanced view of mercy ministry will only make a person's journey more comfortable on the road to hell. And that is what we must safeguard ourselves against. We as a church, we cannot compromise the gospel, right? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel. That is our message of hope. And that is what we proclaim most of all that we can be reconciled to a holy God. We can have forgiveness of our sins and spend eternity in his presence. And that is what we are called to do as a church. And we must make sure that we do not distort the gospel as we seek to live out mercy ministry. But I want you to understand this very clearly, that mercy ministry is a necessary application of the gospel. That if and when you are saved by grace through faith, that if and when you really know God, one of the ways you live that out practically, that you show the love of God in your life is by caring for those around you. That as I've already said, when you are saved by the God of love and mercy, you will want to extend love and mercy to those around you. It is a natural outflow of true faith. And it is something that we, as all Christians, must seek to do. And though the mercy ministry is not the gospel itself, mercy ministry is one of the best ways to practically demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. One of the most famous verses we know of is Matthew 5, 16, where Jesus calls us to live as salt and as light. And what it means that we are living as salt is that through our actions, through our lifestyles, everything in it is pointing people to God. That through the the love we show, through the forgiveness that we show to people, through the joy in our lives, through the mercy that we extend, people look at our lives and say, there is something so different about them. There is something so transformative about them. I want to know what it is. And then through our lifestyles, through being salt and light, we can point people to Christ. And so being a merciful individual, 
extending a hand of mercy, caring for the poor and for the orphan and the widow, first in the church and in all that we see around us. By doing that, we can demonstrate the gospel. We can point people to Jesus Christ and we can point them to the God of mercy, the God of compassion and the God of love who all of us are called to follow after. And so we need to balance out our understanding of mercy ministry. Calvary Bible Church. We must be a mercy practicing church. It is who our heavenly father is. He is a God of compassion and of care and of love. That he pursues the downtrodden. He wants to care for the downtrodden. And therefore, if we will call ourselves Christians, if we say that we are followers of our God and that we will live like him, then we must learn to extend that hand of mercy too. Because that is a sign of true faith and of true love. And as we navigate this very, very confusing world of so many types of people claiming that they know what it means to practice the gospel, we must make sure that we have our priorities straight. That we do not allow mercy ministry to distort the gospel message, but at the same time that we do not forsake mercy ministry entirely because it is a natural and essential fruit of true faith. And in many ways, I think we overcomplicate what it means to practice mercy. As I said before, if we simply see our plight as sinners who have received the mercy of God, the compassion of God, I think that for true believers, there should be a part of us that naturally wants to extend that to other people. That when we see how much we have received from God, the love and compassion and care, that we too, when we see the orphan and the widow, when we see the homeless man on the street, in some sense, we see a spiritual version of ourselves where we were before God reached out to us and that we will want to extend that same type of loving care. And so we as a church, we must seek to extend this type of mercy. We must pray for opportunities to show compassion so that through our lives, individually and corporately, through the mercy and compassion that we show ourselves, we may point to the God who is merciful. That we may see disciples made because of our lifestyles. And that through how we live, we may have more and more opportunities to proclaim the gospel, which saves the poor, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is a very tricky subject. That in our sinful nature, we have a tendency to justify any type of extreme. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would convict every single one of us as we need to be convicted. That if there are those in our midst that have been confused in the gospel, that are trying to do all sorts of things, but missing out on the gift of eternal life, that you would help them to see that error. But even more so, Lord, that if there are those in our midst that are hard-hearted, that do not show compassion, that you would convict them. That you would help all of us as a body to be a mercy-practicing church 
that we would seek to live out a character, a life that is reflective of your nature, O God, and that we would indeed care for the poor and for the marginalized, first in our midst and as much as we have opportunity. Thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.